So in uh, 1960, Time magazine took notice of, notice of something strange that was happening in Switzerland, something going on in Switzerland. It was in a cozy little ski town. There was this community of learning. And it was really unlike anything that was going on in the world. It was a place for wandering students, college kids, traveling abroad. These were men and women who were well-versed with the things in the world. And especially, some of the more modern cultural things, especially philosophical thought, post-enlightenment thought. But they were unhappy with the development of things. They felt their existential crisis. They were not grounded. They were looking for something more. And they came upon this place by word of mouth that they called the shelter. The shelter. Or, as it's commonly known today, Labrie. Labrie was a place for lectures for community, for hospitality, for learning to follow Jesus. As important, though, as Labrie was, because it was very important, it was their founder who was far more consequential in the evangelical church. He was a little man with a high voice, and he wore the traditional Switzerland dress, knickers, and alpine hiking outfits. His name was Francis Schaeffer. It is hard to think of a more important figure in the modern evangelical church. Francis Schaeffer was born in Pennsylvania. He was married to Edith. He was educated at Westminster Theological Seminary. It's there where he took a particular interest in evangelism and especially apologetics. He and his wife, they traveled to Switzerland first as missionaries, eventually founding the Labrie ministry. But at that point, he was in his 50s, and the world began to take notice. They began to take notice. People started to pass around his lectures, the tapes of his his talks. Eventually, those lectures were put into 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 a book form, and his first book was called The God Who Was There. Many, many books would come after that. Francis had a certain knack for engaging with the swirling, tumultuous culture around him that was going on in the 50s and the 60s. He believed wholeheartedly in the objective truth claims of Christianity, but he was not afraid to interact with modern, secular, philosophical thought and even engage with all forms of culture, from pop to culture to art culture. When he came over to speak at Wheaton College in Chicago, the heart of evangelical academia, it was clear that this was a guy who was playing by a different set of rules. One historian wrote about him. At Wheaton College, students were fighting to show films like Bambi. Can you imagine? They were fighting to show Bambi. While Francis was talking about the films of Bergman and Fellini. Administrators at the time were censoring existential themes out of student publications while Francis was discussing discussing Camus, Sartre, And Heidegger, he quoted Dylan Thomas, knew the artwork of Salvador Dali, listened to the music of the Beatles and John Cage. Francis's fame in the church would only increase after this. He would go on to be a major influencer, not only in evangelicalism, but in the world and even in politics. Many of our politicians that came in the last couple of decades were influenced by Francis Schaeffer. And the effect of his life and teachings still reverberates today. 
He influenced people like Chuck Colson, Cal Thomas, Oz Guinness, Clark Pinnock, Mark Knoll, Doug Gruteis, Ronald Wells. Al Mohler, Mohler, he's the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He sums him up very well. He said, Schaefer served as a prophet of cultural engagement during an age of rebellion among America's youth. And he shaped the thinking of an entire generation of theologically minded Christian young people. Schaefer was not perfect. No one is. He often took philosophy and he would generalize it somewhat to suit his own purposes. He would do the same with history. But even in so doing, even in engaging those things, he opened the doors for many Christian women and men to pursue careers in intellectual fields that they not, would not have before his ministry. In the end, though, Schaefer always considered himself a pastor and evangelist. He longed for people to engage with the objective truth of Christ, to take seriously his teachings, and especially to learn to walk with him. If you know anything about Francis Schaefer, he walked the walk. When he began Labrie, he opened his doors to literally anyone. The sermon I'm going to give to you reflects that life, that belief. He beckons the church not simply to see Jesus, but as the shepherds surely were, to be transformed by him. So I have not brought my knickers or my alpine hiking costume. I'm not going to speak in a high voice this morning, but I'm going to speak his words today. Let's pray and then begin. I thank you for your abundant mercies in Christ, and that you continue to give men and women into the church to influence it, to speak for you, to draw people to Christ. And I pray that this morning that we are drawn to Christ by the words of this man who is now deceased. May we learn. May we get into the mind of the shepherds, going back and seeing Jesus for the first time realizing we can no longer live the way we are living. We must live for him. We ask this by your mercy. Amen. Luke 2, 16 through 18. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. After the angels had appeared to them, the shepherds of Bethlehem, they ran down the hill to see the baby that they had been told about. It says that they came with haste. Luke's account, it ties together a glorious opening of the heavens, the speaking or singing of the angels. And some ordinary shepherds who were simply there tending their flocks. The utterly supernatural took place in the framework of their natural habitat. And their reaction, it was simple and human. We have heard about this thing. Let's go see it. In a profound sense, the act of religious intensity is as natural as any other motivation in life. And they went to Bethlehem with haste, obviously because of the reality of their situation that confronted them. Let's imagine that we are the shepherds today. 
this morning on those hills in Palestine. We have seen and heard the angels and we have begun to run to Bethlehem. We come bursting into the presence of Mary, Joseph, and the baby. And immediately we wonder, what are we looking at? First of all, we are looking at a true baby. He is not an idea or a religious experience. He is a newborn infant who makes noises and cries when he gets hungry. What we are looking at is real, simple, definite, complete. We are looking at a true baby. There is no reason to think that the baby showed any sort of special manifestations. An artist such as Rembrandt can paint him with light emanating from his body. And if we understand that light as symbolic, that's safe enough. But if we think of, more, of it more than that, it's harmful. There is no halo about the baby's head. What we see is a young Jewish mother, probably 17 or 18 years old. She may be pretty or not. We see her husband as we see, and we see a little baby who does not show any marks that would distinguish him from any other infant. And yet this little baby we see lying here, it is the second person of the Trinity. He himself has been God forever. This baby is God who has taken on flesh. Why did God come into this world? Only the scriptural answer will suffice for us. The second person of the Trinity has been born because he loves the world. But why did he come this way as a little baby? Why did he choose to lie in a manger and be cared for by a human mother with the sweetness but the utter weakness of a newborn babe? He came this way because he came to meet the central need of men. He did not come to overthrow the Romans, though a lot of Jews would have loved that. If he had, he would have come in, rising in on a great conquering steed. Now surely if modern man was going to vote, if he was going to vote for the Messiah to come, he would appear loaded down with money bags from heaven. Jesus did not come primarily to teach and relieve ignorance. Perhaps then he would have come laden with books. No, an angel revealed to Joseph the primary task for which he came. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He is here to cut to the nerve of man's real dilemma to solve the problem from which all other problems flow. Man is a sinner who needs an overwhelming love. Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. Now many believed in him when he was still an infant. And when they did so, the baby became their savior. The shepherds believed regardless of the simplicity with which they understood. Luke 2.20 And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen and as it was told to them. Now the shepherds, for sure, they believed with less understanding than we do now that we have the New Testament. Though we might think of them as believing with the Old Testament framework as Old Testament saints, the shepherds nonetheless did believe. And they will be in heaven with us. The shepherds are in the church of Christ. Many, I am sure, though, did not believe. 
The shepherds must have run into tremendous dilemma when, as Luke says in verse 17, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. Luke goes on to tell us that all that, that, all that heard it wondered at those things which were told by them of the shepherds. And we cannot doubt that those who wondered must have been split into two different camps. Some believed while others did not. Some must have shrugged their shoulders. All right, but I don't need a Savior. As we ourselves run down the hill with the shepherds, looked at the baby and heard the shepherd's testimony, have we believed? If we have, that is fine, but then we must ask ourselves, what difference has this looking made on our present lives? At Christmas time, we set up our Christmas trees and our toy trains. We may even walk along singing carols. We may even preach a sermon. But these bits and pieces are barren if we are thinking only of them or even thinking just of being in heaven. And are not stopping to ask ourselves, what difference does it make in my life now? What difference has looking made? I think we can approach the answer by thinking about the shepherds. Having had this overwhelming experience in their midst of their normal environment, and then having believed on the Savior, can you imagine one of the shepherds remarking, It's very nice that I have seen an angel, and it is nice that I have seen the Christ, the Messiah the Jews have been waiting for for so long. It's nice that I have believed in him, unlike some other people in Bethlehem, and that I'm going to be in heaven. But really, in practice, it's not going to make much difference in my life at all. This is inconceivable. Since the shepherds were much like each of us, they faced a round of old sins when they returned to life as usual. In light of their experience of looking at the face of baby Jesus, in light of their understanding of that situation, can we imagine them continuing to live in sin as though it were normal, without being sorry and without having any real repentance? I think not. I would suggest that the shepherds, full of the reality of what they had seen in the heavens and then in the manger, would have been sorry for their past sins. And even more sorry for the sins that they committed in the future. We can imagine a shepherd being jeered at by the first man he told the story to. But can we imagine this ridicule stopping him? The shepherd might have been brought up short. Successive jeers might have worn him down. But surely because of the objective reality through which he personally had gone, he would not have been silenced. While the reality of all this was upon the shepherds, I also think that prayer would have been an exceedingly simple experience for them. Communication with God would have become easy because they had seen the supernatural. For if the shepherds had heard the angels, why wouldn't God now hear the shepherds? Having seen the glory of the heavenly host, could a shepherd any longer think of himself also as the center of the universe? Expecting now all things to just get out of his way. The glory would have been too overwhelming. Facing the glory of heaven, the shepherds of Bethlehem surely would not have thought that they could drive their little cart through all the universe, stamping harshly upon God's place. 
Likewise, it is difficult to imagine the shepherds quarreling about personal prerogatives. I cannot be, imagine being faced with the glory of heaven and the Savior of the world and then immediately saying to someone else, I'm first, fellow. I'm first. After this experience, would the shepherds have accepted materialism as either an adequate philosophy or an adequate practice in life? Wouldn't looking at the glory of heaven readjust one's values? I think so. Grasping to have gold jingling in the pockets and angels singing in the heavens do not quite fit together. The angels had said to them in Luke 2, 10 through 11, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And so this last thing, it is that joy is part of this too. Certainly the shepherds were glad. They were glad. They were full of joy. This does not mean a kind of senseless happiness or smile. Nor does it mean that there are no tears or that things in this world are are not as bad as God says they are. This joy is connected with the reality of our knowledge of who Jesus is, our relationship with him. And our worship of him. Friends, brothers and sisters, imagine you are a shepherd on the hillside. And when the heavenly host appears, you are not to be afraid. You are to have great joy. It is the same with all the teaching of the gospel that flows from the event when the shepherds saw and heard the angels. When they ran down the hill and looked upon the baby. This is the difference it makes in our lives. And they worshiped him with great joy. Let's pray. Oh God, in your infinite mercy and love, may you give us new eyes this morning. In your grace, On this Christmas morning when our thoughts are running everywhere else to feasts and presents, to no school, fix our eyes upon Jesus Christ. But may we not just see him, but may we know him with our hearts and change our lives in accordance with his love. May it affect everything that we are, everything that we do, our speech, our acts, our service, our love, our relationships, our work. May we not forget this baby who came into this earth, into the darkness for us. And especially may it not just be a day where we look at him. Not just today, but tomorrow. A week from now, a month from now, a year from now. May our lives, as we look back on them, be a testimony to this thing that we have seen and come into contact with the objective Jesus Christ, the true, real Jesus Christ. He is alive today. 
He is well. He has died for us and He has risen to new life. We are now His and He is ours. May we never be the same. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.